good morning and happy Mother's Day. I once met a guy at a party who spent the entire evening walking around from conversation to conversation, uh, mixing himself in. So whatever story you were telling, whatever experience you had had, he'd had it too. You ever been in one of those conversations? So he'd walk in and someone would be talking uh, about banking and he'd be like, yeah, I've been a banker. And then talking about real estate, oh, I've, I've done real estate. Uh, uh, just from one conversation that I was praying the whole night, like, man, please don't walk up to someone who's like, I just became a mom, because I swear this guy would try to be convincing them, right? Like, oh, I've become a mom. What really, the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, was at one point in the evening, I'm talking with a friend. I'm training for a race, a distance race, and he comes up and he hears us talking about long miles and, and recovering after those long weekend runs. And he hears us talking about all the recovery and the stuff that we're doing and that, and I'm getting tips from my friend, and he comes in and says, oh, yeah, man, I hate running those long miles. And if you'd seen this guy, then you would know he's not a man who's ever met a long mile, let alone run one, right? And I get it. Like, I'm not expecting everyone to be a runner, right? I'm not a weightlifter, which is why I don't go around at parties telling people that I am. But he comes in, and he's like, oh, yeah, and he starts trying to relate to us in this conversation on running long miles. And it's just awkward, and it's apparent. You don't run long miles. I don't know if you've ever had that experience with someone who claims to be something that they're not, claims to have done something that they've obviously not done. James today wants to have a conversation with us, the church, as to whether our walk is in line with our talk. James' concern is with a church that's claiming to follow Jesus, but failing to care for the most vulnerable among them. And James wants to talk about whether this church's walk measures up. Turn me to the book of James, James chapter 2. James 2. James is after the book of Hebrews, three quarters of the way through your Bible. Uh, after the book of Hebrews, before 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And James is writing here to a church. And as we've seen, it's a part of an ongoing conversation about holding fast in their faith no matter what. So he begins with holding fast, steadfast in trial, steadfast in temptation. He then talks about being not only hearers only, but doers of the word. And now James is going to put that to the test as he talks about faith and works, as he challenges us that faith without works is dead. So pick it up with me in chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active 
along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Again, James having this ongoing conversation with us as to holding fast in the faith. Are we holding fast to our confession? Or like this church, are they claiming to follow Jesus while favoring the rich and neglecting the poor? That's the issue driving him, and that's why he says in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? The operative word there, there is a speech that is happening, but it's not being backed up by your conduct. You're saying you have faith, but you're neglecting the poorest among you. You're neglecting those that Jesus loved. And you hear in this, again, the echoes of chapter 1 when he's talking about not just being hearers only, but doers. He's saying, hey, if you're going to say this, then, then you need to follow through on this confession of faith. And, and it's really why three times he says that word. Verse 14. If someone says he has faith but does not have works. Verse 16, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled. Verse 18, someone will say, James is questioning whether our conduct is in line with our speech or our speech is getting ahead, but we're not backing it up. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, then do the things that Jesus has called you to do. He's questioning whether our hearts and our behaviors are aligned with the heart and the behavior of Jesus, the heart and behavior of God. He says, I want to see these things come together. And so what good is it just to say it, that you're following Jesus but not living like him? The example he gives is the very same issue we were looking at last week with favoring the rich over the poor. He points in verse 15 here, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. What good is that? I understand James here is not painting a questionable picture of is this person really in need? And man, they came up and they asked for money, but did you see the shoes they were wearing? I don't know if they really need it. Understand in the Greek, that phrase, poorly clothed, is one word in the Greek. It literally means unclothed or naked. It's used that way elsewhere in scripture, unclothed or naked. James is saying, this is not a person where you're wondering if they really need the help. This is a person who by their very appearance, it is obvious that they are in a desperate state and they need help. And if in that moment, seeing someone in an obvious, desperate state of need, to simply say to them, be warmed and be filled, what good is that? In fact, just think the irony of that blessing. You're offering a blessing instead of tangible help. And the blessing to someone without clothing is be warm. And the blessing to someone without food is be filled. That is salt in the wound. James says it does nothing. See, James isn't calling us to simply be nice. 
He's calling us to be effective, to do what Jesus did. In effect, he's saying, hey, stop saying God bless you when God brought them to you. And you're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So stop saying God bless you while ignoring the need that God has invited you to help with. So do what Jesus did. And again, James always looking back on the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and remembering his life, that Jesus was compassionate to the poor. Jesus healed the deaf. He raised the lame. Jesus fed the five thousand. When what? When the disciples turned to Jesus and said, hey, it's getting late in the day, send them away, send them into the villages that they might get food. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he's like, why don't you feed them? And all the disciples in that moment are like, ah, oh, man, I left my wallet. I'm, I'm a little short. Like, I, how are we supposed to feed 5,000? Jesus, with great compassion, does a miracle and feeds the 5,000. James says, hey, when someone comes up and they're poorly clothed and they're hungry, contemplate what Jesus did. And if you say that you are following Jesus, then do the things that Jesus himself did for the poor. This is why he says in verse 17 that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Notice he doesn't just say faith without works is immature. If you have faith, but your works aren't quite there yet, you just need to be discipled in the faith a bit more. You need another Bible study. No, James says, no, faith without works is dead. What does a dead man have to offer? Nothing. What can a dead man do for you? Nothing. What kind of life is a dead man living? No life at all which is a striking statement when you consider that the picture from Genesis through to Revelation is of God's desire to bring us, what? Life, and life abundant. It says to have faith without works is to be devoid of the very thing that Jesus came to provide. James, very simply, is saying here, if our confession of faith does not produce a walk of faith, then it is a dead faith. Summary of the first few verses. If our confession of faith does not produce a walk of faith, then it is a dead faith. It does nothing. It has nothing to offer anyone. Nothing to offer anyone. And a faith that does nothing is worth nothing to anyone. Because faith in Christ should result in the activity of Christ, that we live for Christ, we die to self, and we give our lives in service to others. It's the, it's the gospel grid. It's the call of the gospel on our lives. And James knows that this is a tough thing to hear. James knows and anticipates that there will be objections from the church. And so he goes right after these objections in verse 18. Dive in with me. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And from there he offers two examples of Abraham and Rahab. James anticipates there will be an objection to this. People will push back on this. 
The objection seemingly in the church is that people were arguing with James. Hey, James, I get it. I get it. Like, you're a works guy. Like, you're a service guy. And that's so great. We need people like you. But I'm a faith person. So your works, your service, that's great. I'm faith. And the church needs both of us. So we're good, right? They might even argue, you can imagine, like, hey, I've read what Paul wrote about the spiritual gifts in Corinth, right? And the spiritual gifts given to us through the Holy Spirit. And so, James, it's great. You've obviously got the the gift of service, but I have the gift of faith. And James is like, no, 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 no. We are not going to separate these two. There is no room in the gospel and there is no room in the church to separate the declaration that we make about God from a life lived in pursuit of that God. We cannot separate them. So he issues the challenge then in return to this argument. Show me your faith. Like, all right, you believe your faith is enough? Like, show me. Show me your faith and I'll show you mine by what you see in my life, by how you see me love people well. Because here's the catch, as they're wrestling with just a declaration of faith being enough. Here's the catch. He says in verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you think your your faith is enough, that declaration of faith is enough. Great. You do well. God is one. But guess what? Even the demons believe that. So really... If all you do is believe that God is one, James is saying, you're no better than the demons. Because the reality from James' perspective is that the demons in hell have the right theology. The problem is they're just not submitted to it. Hell is full of great theology because the people that arrive there suddenly see everything perfectly clear. God is real. Eternity was real. The demons believe that God is one. Now understand, James is writing this to a Jewish audience, primarily Jewish audience, Jewish Christians. They're on the run. Rome is coming down, persecuting them. They're fleeing Jerusalem. James is writing this Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus. But what's one of the the foundations of the Jewish faith? One of the confessions that they held dear comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Every good Jew memorized this confession, and every good Jew recited this confession daily, if not twice daily. We call it the Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And it goes on from there, say that you shall teach this to your children, imprint this on them and on your lives, on your families. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema because in Hebrew, that first word that we translate as hear, in Hebrew is the word Shema. Every good Jew memorized this. Every good Jew recited it daily as their confession of faith. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Even Canadian seminary students had to memorize it. And James is saying, good job, pat yourself on the back, that you can recite your confession of faith, but the demons believe God is one too. What's the difference? They haven't lived into it. They haven't believed it enough to surrender their lives to it. And if you 
are claiming it and memorized it and quoting it, but doing nothing with it, then your faith is dead. There's no life in that confession. So he says, do you want to be shown? Do you want me to show you and prove to you that these things cannot be separated? Two biblical examples, verse 21, Abraham, and then Rahab. Verse 21, he says, did not Abraham offer the life of his son on the altar as proof of his great faith in God? This comes from the book of Genesis. If you're unfamiliar with the story, in the book of Genesis, God calls Abraham to follow him, and Abraham does. Abraham and his wife Sarah, however, are barren. They cannot have children. And so God makes Abraham a promise in Genesis chapter 15 and says that one day you will have a son, flesh and blood. I will give you a son. And through him, all the nations will be blessed. In fact, through this son, flesh and blood, you will be counted as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's the promise to Abraham. After the son comes, though, Genesis chapter 22 tells us that God came and he tested Abraham's faith. And he asked Abraham to take this son, this, this proof of promise, and to lay him on an altar to sacrifice him. And Abraham willingly obeys. God, in the 11th hour, though, stops it, right? He provides a ram because God is just testing the quality of Abraham's faith. Can you trust everything in your life to me and believe that I will still be faithful to my promises? It's the very question we should be asking of ourselves. Can you trust everything in your life to God and believe he'll still be faithful to his promises? Abraham is willing to take this sign and say, yes, I absolutely believe that if you've called me to do this, you will still somehow, some way be faithful to the promise that you gave me because you are a faithful God. And God shows up. He proves himself faithful. Isaac is spared. He isn't sacrificed. And James points at this moment and says it's proof of Abraham's deep faith. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, recounts this from Abraham's perspective. He, Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Meaning, Abraham didn't just believe that God could be trusted with the promise. He believed that if God was asking him to sacrifice his son, somehow God would be able to raise him from the dead. Means long before resurrection became part of our vernacular as Christians, Abraham believed it. That's how deep his faith was in God. James points to Abraham and he says, see, that is deep faith. Because he didn't just make a confession about God, he walked it out. Then he points to Rahab as the second example. The story of Rahab is found in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2. God has freed the people of God, Israel, from Egypt, slavery in Egypt. He's led them through the wilderness by way of Moses' leadership. And then Moses, as he ages, uh, hands leadership over to Joshua. And Joshua leads the people into the promised land. But before he goes, he sends spies in to survey the land. The first major city that they encounter is Jericho, fortified with walls. These spies go in to survey this. And in the process, the king hears that this land is being surveyed, hears of these spies. He begins seeking out the spies. They take refuge. They hide in Rahab's apartment, 
as it were. And I'm sure these men are thinking, yeah, she's a prostitute, but that means no one will really think twice about weird men coming in and out. Like, we'll hide there safely. It's here in this place that Rahab declares to them, I know all about your God and his power. I believe that he has given you this land. And I believe that because he is the God of the heavens and the earth, he will see this through. Therefore, she says to them, because of this belief, I'm going to help you escape She not only harbors them, she helps them escape, which is an affront to the king of Jericho. But as they're escaping, as they're leaving, she says to them, remember me. When the Lord gives you this land, would you remember me and spare my life? Effectively, in this moment, Rahab is showing not just a confession that he is the one true God, the God of the heavens and the earth. She's saying, I'm willing to trust my life to this God. I believe so much he's given you this land that I know you will come back and take it. And when you do, remember me. I'm placing my life in the promise that he has given you. James says, that's deep faith. Abraham, a father, a male figure in a patriarchal society, great figure of faith, but now he's also offered up Rahab, a Gentile, a prostitute. James is saying, hey, Rahab didn't just believe God is one, she lived it. Because James is wrestling with a specific question. How do you know that someone really believes what they say they believe? Effectively, James is saying true faith is seen by an obedient life. True faith is evidenced by an obedient life. It's carried out in this action, this action that's rooted in deep faith. True faith is seen in obedient life. It doesn't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. And Rahab, arguably a Gentile, it has no part of being a, a, a part of a Jewish promise. God uses her and he spares her life. And it's in spite of who she is. Because there'd be nothing in her that would say, oh yeah, you measure up to Abraham. And yet God spares her life. At this point, you could argue, but that's the gospel, right? That it's not based on what you've done. It's not based on your past and your history and what God sees in you. It's just based on your faith in him. And yet James here is arguing that you have to have faith in him, but also some works. So how does this connect? Because it feels like a bit of a contradiction. Like You're letting Rahab in, but you're also saying, hey, you got to have works. It's all faith in God, but, but you really need to prove it. It's this tension that led Luther, a pastor and theologian, who, who was massively helpful in bringing the church to a right understanding of salvation in the midst of a time when the, the church was, was pushing that you have to work for it and earn it, and if you pay us, we'll bless you and you'll be forgiven. And, and Luther pushes back on that, And uproots again from the gospel, the truth that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Luther, when he read James, was in tension. In fact, he hated the book of James and he argued it shouldn't be included in the scriptures because it contradicted Paul, that you only need faith. Let let me put the tension in perspective for a moment so you understand the tension between this that we talk about so frequently in the in the gospel and between Paul and James. See, Paul, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, is saying we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
Paul's saying, hey, you're justified by faith, apart from what you do, apart from works. But here, James, in James 2, 24, is saying a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So yeah, no wonder Luther hated James. Feels confusing. It feels like a contradiction. How do we understand these two things? Do, do you need just faith? Or do you need to prove it to for God to embrace you? Understand that both Paul and James are having a conversation on the same thing, faith. But also understand that they are pursuing this conversation from very different angles. Think about it this way. If you go to a dinner party, you're standing in the living room and you're talking to someone about the economy. And they're just going on and on. Man, the housing market right now is crazy. Have you seen housing prices are through the roof and lumber prices are through the roof and we can't keep up, we can't build them fast enough, we can't keep them on the market. And, and every time a house is sold, there is a bidding war and houses are going for over market value. The economy is red hot. Let's imagine then that you leave that conversation in the living room and you walk into the kitchen and you hear somebody else talking about the economy. And you'd be like, oh yeah, we were just talking about this in the living room. The economy's red hot. And imagine they look at you and you're like, did you not see the jobs report that came out this weekend? Jobs report says we fell way short. I don't think the economy's hot at all. I think the economy's inflated. I think it's a bubble. I think we need to slow it down. Like, I think we need to be careful. Same conversation, the economy, two very different perspectives. James and Paul are both talking about faith from different perspectives. Paul is asking and answering a very different question than James. Paul is asking and answering this question, how are we saved? That's the issue he's dealing with in the book of Romans. How are you saved? And so he writes to this group in the book of Romans, hey, we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in desperate need then of God's grace. Because we've fallen short, we cannot, through our own effort, through our own work, please God. Our works are tainted. But Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice. His perfect work was able to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law so that anyone who believes in him might be saved based on Christ's perfect work, not our tainted work, because we deserve nothing. So Jane, or Paul is answering the question, how are you saved? But James is asking and answering a very different question. James is asking and answering the question of, what does a saved person do? And what does a saved person look like? And once you're saved, what should that produce in your life. The topic of faith is still at the core, but they're asking and answering very different questions. James totally gets where salvation comes from, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but he's asking, how do you know that, how do we know that you've made this confession because what you're saying is not what you're doing when it comes to those who are poor among you? This is why he says, you see, multiple times in the passage. Verse 22, you see, you see, 
And verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's giving these examples because he's focused on the evidence, on the proof. I want to see this in your life because Christ has called us not just to make hollow confessions, but to live in the way of Jesus. And by the way, this is the very thing that Paul calls us to as well. When Paul's explaining the gospel, when he's being accused and kind of questioned on trial in Acts 26, 20, Paul says the same thing. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Hey, believe in him and then go out and perform deeds in keeping with the confession that you've made. Paul's saying the same thing. But in Romans, he was just asking and answering a different question. Christianity then, understand, Christianity is not about saying the right thing or just singing a song. If you claim to believe in Jesus, then you're called to do the things that Jesus has called you to do. Let me paint a picture here, because I really want to make sure that this isn't missed. We can't miss the gospel. So let me just paint a picture. This, this is a very fine, um, fancy, I would add, Northeast Bible Church pen. Um, when it comes to our writing utensils at Northeast, we spare no expense. Only the best for you. And so we have these pens, and, and we give them out to people, and we give them to guests. We want them to be able to have this. It is very, again, it's very fine. It is priceless, really. When we ordered them, I saw the invoice. I was like, wow. But I signed off on it, right? And so it, it, the pens are completely paid for, but, but they're for you. And, and we want you to have one. And so these pens have been paid for. They're for you, but I'm telling you, don't even look it up on the internet. Your job will drop. It'll hit the keyboard. They're priceless. But the cost has been paid. So if I want to offer you this pen, Moira, what do you need to do to receive the pen? It's yours for the taking. I've paid the, the cost. Absolutely, it's yours. What do you need to do to receive it? Nothing. Just receive it, right? Except that you have to believe that what I'm saying is true. You, you have to have faith that I have actually paid for it. I didn't steal it. You have to believe that, that I am actually offering it to you, and you have to believe that I'm not expecting anything from you, that I'm just asking you to receive it. Paul is saying, hey, how do you get a pen? That's the answer, the question in the answer that he's arguing in Romans. How do you get the pen? But James is arguing from a very different standpoint. James is asking and answering the question, how do I know you're a writer? See, here's the thing. James is saying, if you walk around saying you're a writer just because you're holding a pen, you're a fool. We come to faith by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not by our works. But once we are saved and have placed our faith in Jesus, calling yourself a Christian without ever living it out is as crazy as calling yourself a writer just because you own a pen. The proof of your faith in Jesus is that you don't just say you follow Jesus, you actually do Jesus things. Because writers write. They don't just have pens. And runners run. They don't just say they do. James is saying, you've made this confession, but I want you to live into the confession. Because Christians 
do Christian things. Followers of Jesus do Jesus things. And if Jesus loved and cared for the poor, then so too should we. And to say that we follow Jesus but not care for the poor is no better than saying that we're writers when we've never even clicked the pen. What does this mean? What's the takeaway for us in this? Understand this about this passage, and this is really important. James is not writing this passage so that you would be able to judge other people's lives. James is writing this passage so that you might reflect on your own. This scripture, this passage, is not a window through which you're given permission to look at every other person and figure out why they're not who they say they are. No, this picture and this passage is given to us not as a window but as a mirror. James is trying to hold up a mirror to the church's face. Say, hey, I want you to look hard. Do you live what you say you believe? The question then for us in this, the takeaway for us in this, is to allow this to be a mirror and to ask God, Father, is there anything in me that's not lining up with Jesus? Lord, is there anything that you've called me to do that I've been neglect in doing, that I've been reticent to be? Is there anything that you're calling me to live into, God, that, that I haven't heard and maybe I'm deaf and God, hear, heal me, cure my deafness so that I would hear you and follow you. But Lord, if I have heard you and I'm just being obstinate, then change my heart, God. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the prayer out of this passage. This is the cry. Because here's the thing, when Jesus calls us to follow him, there's lots of things that come with that. And some of them are easy and joyful and wonderful. And we're so good at doing the easy I, I get to come and I get to sing and, and worship and sing a new song even. And coming and worshiping for an hour on Sunday is easy. But then Jesus also modeled for us what it means to die to self and give our lives in service to others. And after singing the song, he grabs a basin and a towel and he washes the feet of his disciples, even the feet of the one who is going to betray him. And then he turns to us and he says, go and do likewise. Lay your life down and serve even the ones who are hard. Serve the ones who betray you. Live for Christ. Die to self. Give your life in service to others. It is the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is not just to sing a gospel song. The call of the gospel is to live in the way of Jesus. So let us not be hearers only. But let us, with this mirror in front of our faces, ask him, Father, is there anything in me that I'm not living into? Is there anything in me that you've called me to? And I'm either deaf or dumb, or I'm just stubborn. And God, would you change me? Would you change me? In a moment, we're going to celebrate the very thing that James has been talking about, faith, our salvation in Jesus. 
but we dare not celebrate this without first reflecting on our hearts and making sure that we are living in the way of Jesus, living in the way of the one that we want to celebrate. So for those in the room and those of you at home, can I just encourage you, before we take communion together, can we just pause and can we just ask God to to show us us? Can we ask the Holy Spirit to, to reveal to us the parts of our heart where we're not in step, where we're not in obedience to the word of God? Would you take a moment now and would you just ask him, Father, Would you, through the kindness of your Holy Spirit, reveal to me, Lord, is there anything in me that's outside of your will? Lord, in your kindness, would you reveal to me, is there something that I'm neglecting? Father, is there someone I'm neglecting? Neglecting to serve, neglecting to love the way that you love them. Father, would you change my heart? If you're joining us today and you're hearing this, this news of Jesus for the very first time, maybe struggling through it, confused by it, Know that the gospel is simply this, and the picture of communion, what we're about to celebrate is simply this, that Jesus Christ came to offer his body and his blood for us. Jesus lived the perfect life so that he would go to the cross and he would pay the debt of your sin. And the scriptures say that simply believing in him grants us eternal life. There's nothing that we can do because Jesus has done it all already for you. If you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then you don't have assurance of eternal life. But if you're ready to place your faith in him for the hope of heaven, for forgiveness of sins, would you do so here and now today? It begins with that simple confession. Father, I confess I am in need of you. I have fallen short, God, of sin. But I choose today to place my faith in Jesus Christ. Recognizing that there's nothing that I can do, God, in and of myself. And everything I've tried to do has failed. And so, God, I stop trying today. And I place my faith and trust in Jesus. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you change me? And would you teach me a new way to live? If you just prayed that prayer, then know that he has heard you and he has forgiven you. But he also now wants to do a work in you to mature you and teach you that new way to live. It's this very work that Jesus pictured for us on the night that he died. He gathered the disciples together. And so together we tonight, today, will celebrate this act of communion. If you're with us or at home, would you take the bread and the cup? Jesus, after serving the disciples, he sat down and he said this, this bread, taking the bread, he said this is my body broken for you. It was a picture of what he was about to do to give his very life for them, for their salvation.
Jesus broke the bread and he handed it to them and he said, take and eat in remembrance of me. And then the scriptures say that taking the cup, Jesus handed it to them and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant. It's my blood shed for the remission of your sins, my sacrifice for your forgiveness. Take and drink in remembrance of me. So, Father, with the sweetness of that on our lips, we come rejoicing in the sweetness of your salvation. Father, that we are saved by Christ's work, not our own, but we are saved to do a good work, that the world might see us and know the truth about Jesus. And so, Father, May we not just sing these songs in response, but may our very lives, God, be a picture of your grace and a proof of your great love. Thank you for loving someone like me. Father, thank you. And would you now lead us, Father, to live in light of that love, we ask. In Jesus' matchless name, and all God's people said, amen.